Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Past Imperfect. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. Welcome to Past Imperfect, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And we're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest this week was born in Canada, in the town of Edmonton, Alberta. His first memory, he says, was looking up and seeing a load of guys with white coats around me. He'd contracted polio and his father, a physician who ran the clinical lab, had also caught the disease and was critically ill in the same hospital. Now, nearly 70 years later, he is best known as the Regis Professor of Medicine at Oxford, called Prof by his students, who helped secure a Covid vaccine and advised the government on how to lead Britain out of the pandemic. People forget about polio, he says, but Professor Bell never did, always concerned that another disease may sweep across the world. So John Bell, welcome to Past Imperfect. You still have a bit of a Canadian accent. Do you still think of yourself as Canadian? Yeah, actually, I've got a, quite a strong Canadian accent. And it's turned out to be quite helpful because I've been in this country actually now longer than I lived in Canada. But because I've got a Canadian accent, they don't slot me into particular domains in this country. I'm kind of different. And that's turned out to be quite helpful in a whole variety of ways. And I am very, very loyal to the home to the homeland, so I go back regularly, and it's, yeah. So what's your favourite trait of Canadians? I, I, th- I, mean, I think one of the really great things about Canadians is they're incredibly modest and actually rather nice about most things, which is, which is sort of pleasant. Now, some would say they lack the sort of greatiness that actually makes great societies, but truth is it's a lovely place to live, and uh, those are the features that I think are really nice. And we want to take you back to your childhood in Canada. You were born in Edmonton in Alberta. Can you remember anything at all before being hospitalised? Not, not really, because um, I was pretty young when I was hospitalised, so I can't really remember. And it was a, it was a fairly traumatic time, So, because my father became ill and then I became ill and there was, you know, the household was in pandemonium and all that stuff. So I, d- I don't, but I don't remember much before that. And how did your father contract polio? Did he get it from one of his patients? Well, my father ran the clinical labs at the big university hospital in Edmonton. And so he was in and out of the hospital all the time. And I, I think people don't, people who haven't lived through that probably don't remember. There was a lot of polio over that period, 52, 53, 54. There was actually quite a lot in this country as well. And what's ironic about it is that, you know, the, the Salk vaccine, you know, he, I think, gave himself and his family the first doses of the vaccine in 53. 
and then started the big clinical trial, which was partly done in Canada for all those same reasons, and finished the trial, I guess, in late 54. Uh, and then it was approved. Regulators approved it, I think, on the day that they analyzed the data. So it has a lot of similarities to COVID because it took them a year to do a very big trial for a vaccine for an infectious disease. But the, um, you know, that was the history. And that, if you look at the polio numbers in North America over that period, 52 to 55, there was a massive spike uh, with lots of people affected. And I do remember, although I was too small to have lots of mates that I knew, um, by the time I got to school, there were lots of kids who had calipers and braces on their legs and all that stuff. So it was quite a, it was quite a profound epidemic in, in that bit of the world. And your mother must have been terrified, wasn't she, to have both her husband and one of her children that ill? Yeah. It, I mean, I think it was probably pretty tough on her um, because she was carrying my youngest brother at the time. So she was pregnant at the time that my dad got sick and that I got sick. So she was busy trying to, you know, run through with a pregnancy and at the same time look after my older brother and herself and me. And my father was admitted to hospital and spent a long time in hospital. In fact, he was in hospital for about a year, I think, or maybe more than that. And so we didn't see much of him. We were kind of, I was in hospital, but for a much briefer time. And then I was at home and then we didn't see him at all for quite a long time. So... So that was pretty hard on her because, um, of course, he was the main breadwinner in the family, so there was all that issues about, you know, financial security and the likes. But she'd, she'd come from a, a pretty robust background, so she, her, her family, my grandparents on her side had come from Nevada, and the family had migrated from Ireland to Nevada. There's, I don't know, you've never been to Nevada. There's nothing in Nevada, let me tell you. Absolutely. Well, there's a few casinos, but there weren't in those days. And they had, they had built a farm in a thing called the Monitor Valley, which is right in the middle of Nevada. And it's absolutely arid, dry land, no water at all. And they, because they come from Ireland, they thought, well, we'll, we'll grow some sheep on this. Well, growing sheep in a <laughs> desert, not that easy. Anyway, but it turned out to be, well, it was the biggest ranch in the whole of Nevada in the end because they just kept, because you needed, you know, 10 acres per sheep. So so that became a very expansive domain, but it was 70 or 80 miles from the nearest settlement, so it was in the middle of nowhere. So this family was, there's actually quite a good YouTube video if you ever want to watch it on this. And it's still, the house is still there. It's a wreck now, but they've filmed it. And, uh, and then there were... Uh, in that family, my grandmother met her husband. They got married, and then they migrated to Canada to homestead in Canada. So if you thought the Monitor Valley was hard, let me tell you, that was nothing. Because <laughs> for people who know northern Canada, it is really cold, mm. and it's pretty flat. And, you know, there was nothing there. They got a piece of land a section of land and they started to farm it. So my mother was raised on a farm in the middle of Alberta and so she was pretty tough. So they were real pioneers. Yeah. Very much actually. She, you know, she'd tell stories. That, they, you know, they went to, she and her brother went to school on a horse or they walked for five miles, you know, all that. Oh, wow. 
you know, we joke about that. We say, yeah. <laughs> say uh, I walked to school in paper bags and all that stuff. Well, I actually, my mother actually did that. So it's, uh, anyway, but that, but so, so she, that, so, so she, so she, so she, so she mm. was pretty good. And, mm. and her mother, who had then left the farm by the time we were small kids, she lived not very far from us. So there was, so she helped with the looking after the kids and all that sort of stuff. But it was, it was sort of all hands on deck. And, and then, and, and then, you know, my father ended up paraplegic and in a wheelchair. But, you know, we had to, before he came home, I remember there's lots of, because of course you have a house and you don't get ready for that. So, you know, we had a ramp put up the front steps and we had to reorganize the house and get it all set up. And, and I, that, that's one thing I do remember is I... And what do you remember of your own time in hospital? When, how did you realise you were then getting ill? Well, I, I was in hospital overlapping with my father and the worry with me was, was um, you know, your bones don't grow straight if you've got polio because you lose all your muscular tone. And so they were pretty worried that I was going to end up with a, you know, a set of bones that didn't hook up properly. And so... I was looked after by an orthopedic surgeon and I was put up in a funny sort of um, machine that stretched your legs. So I, as far as I can remember, my legs were up in the air and they were being stretched and I was lying on my back most of the time. So I could see when the when the team, when the wardrobe came around, I could see everybody because they were all leaning over the side of the, what was essentially a cot. So I, that, that I do remember. Um, and I don't, I mean, I just remember thinking it was all a bit odd. And, and then, and, and then, you know, my father ended up paraplegic and in a wheelchair. But, you know, we had to, before he came home, I remember there's lots of, because of course you have a house and you don't get ready for that. So, you know, we had a ramp put up the front steps and we had to reorganize the house and get it all set up. And, and I, that, that's one thing I do remember is I, I've got, I think, what I think is a real recollection, not a, a sort of second-order recollection of him coming home for the first time. And I didn't, I, none of us really knew him because he'd been in hospitals, so that was, that was good, actually. Mm. Very mm. Good. No, Did it, it leave any good. permanent damage at all? Well, I've got a slightly funny leg, which is a little bit not quite the same as the others, and my muscles in that leg are not quite the same. So when I do certain sports, I notice the difference between my legs. But... You know, to be honest, when I look around at a lot of my um, peer group over that period, I came out of it really well. Mm. You know, there were lots of kids who had really big trouble, big differences in leg length and straightness and strength. So, so it's fine. Yeah. So can you just explain to us what polio does, what effect it has, what are the symptoms? Well, it's a neurological disease that um, infects um, the motor neurons and means that you lose, you get drop out of your muscle fibers as they, because each muscle fiber has a particular bit of the neuron that goes to it and fires that particular muscle cell. And you lose that over time. So you lose your muscular strength. You don't lose sensation, you lose muscle strength. Although, interestingly, my father lost sensation as well. Nobody's quite ever worked that out. But anyway, they almost everybody just loses muscle power. And that and and it tends to it tends to ascend. So you, it often starts in the lower limbs and then works its way up. And where you run into trouble when it gets to the diaphragm, 
because then the diaphragm's not going, then you lose the ability to breathe, and then hence the famous iron lungs. And you know, most people who worked in hospitals over that period, and for a long time after, because there were a cohort of people who couldn't breathe, so they all mm. went in iron lungs, mm. and initially they tipped them like this, and then they got them so they actually compressed and so on and so forth. So, so that was a feature of almost all hospitals in Western countries for a very long period of time. Mm and was um, was just a feature of the fact that some people, it got to their diaphragms and other people didn't. So fortunately, my father's paralysis stopped at about his waist and it didn't get to his diaphragm, so that was obviously a big moment. And mine never got beyond my legs. So that, you know, it differs for different people, but that's that's basically the syndrome. And it's now nearly extinct, isn't it? Does- well, it's interesting because, you know, one of the things I spend a bit of time helping the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who've done a terrific job in global health and big infectious diseases in the developing world. And, you know, Bill and Melinda were very passionate about trying to eradicate polio, which is a big lift. And they've been pretty good about systematically making sure that vaccines have got to some of the most isolated bits of the world. And, you know, we got to the point where we were literally counting cases in a few places around the world only. And the and the outbreaks came when the vaccine didn't get to everybody because, you know, sometimes there was um, outbreaks of terrorism or whatever that didn't allow people to get out with the vaccines. And so you get a little spike or there was an inadequate vaccination. And it's actually had a bit of a setback through COVID. So the numbers are worse now than they were a few years ago. But I mean, there is a steady effort. It it also needed a new vaccine. So they've been busy making a new vaccine because we had the two vaccines, but they weren't quite enough. And one of the vaccines, the live vaccine, the Sabin vaccine, of course, they do get occasional reversions back to wild type. So these things, and, and if you get immunosuppressed people, um, then they can't really, even with the vaccine, they can't eliminate the virus. So there's a lot of complexity. Once you get to eradicating an infectious disease, like we're trying to do with polio at the moment, it gets really complicated. Mm. And and that's why when people said in COVID, oh, well, we'll just get rid of the virus, I thought, oh, yeah, mm. right, give me <laughs> a break, actually. How the hell is that going to work? Mm. So so that, anyway, that that that's sort of where they are with polio. But yeah. So was there a vaccine developed when you were young? But not so, deployed fast yeah, enough. So, so the first vaccine that was developed was developed by Jonas Salk, and it was an inactivated virus vaccine. And he, I think, de- developed it, improved it in primates and in a variety of model systems. And then the first injections of that started in '53, before I actually had the disease. And then. He was busy racing to get it approved and trialed and all that stuff while there was this massive epidemic going on in in the US and in Canada. So it was it was it was not dissimilar to the situation. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, of course, I didn't recognize this, but if you talk to my mother, you know, it was a pretty scary time because lots of people were getting polio and the transmission pattern was it was a bit like covid we didn't really know did you get it from a swimming pool did you get it from drinking water did you get it from food and 
you know, once you'd had it, you're in trouble usually. Mm -hmm. So that, so it was a, you know, that was a pretty tricky time. Mm -hmm. Did it also make you interested in becoming a doctor? Well, I, I was, so I was kind of locked into that, I suspect anyway, although I did try and turn left when I got to university and do history instead of medicine, but in the end I did medicine. Is that your parents or...? Well, my, no, in fairness to my parents, they didn't push me at all to do medicine. Uh, and in fact, they encouraged me it, when I first started. I said, oh, I'm going to do history. And then I thought, well, after a year of that, I thought, eh, I'm not so sure. And, and of course, the attraction of having close exposure to someone in the medical profession like my father was always interesting because it's a very interesting subject. And he would come home with tales of this and that. And he'd, this and that so and, and a, he was one of four boys and three of them were doctors and then his father was actually a very distinguished professor of therapeutics uh, who had been in Toronto and then moved to Alberta and who had been the first uh, person to test out divinyl ether which used to be one of the major anesthetics in those days so he he was the first person to use it on a person, and that was himself. So he got one of his mates to give him some. <laughs> so that's the way we used to do it. Didn't need any consent for that. You just kind of get oh going. Those are the days <laughs> when biomedical research was a lot more fun, actually. So you could have done the first COVID inoculation yeah, 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 yourself. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in those days, that would have been allowed. Anyway, yeah. yeah. And then when you're, you're at school, um, in Canada, what was that like? Was it very different from the schools here? I mean, you've, you've got children now who are going through this British school system. What what did you learn and were you into science then? Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, I, you, I think you sort of have to set the context because, you know, Edmonton was not a very big place and it had a pretty inhospitable climate. Um, uh, and the schools, the 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 state school system was sort of okay. I wouldn't say it was terrific, but they gave you the, the kind of fundamentals. Um, but, it, you know, I, I didn't go to a particularly academic school and there wasn't any real push to do academic stuff. They just wanted to give you the basics in everything one way or another. So you had to, if you were interested in something, you had to kind of go out of your way to learn about it. So, and fortunately, because my father was medical he you know if we expressed any interest in anything in science he would he would help us along so we got quite a lot of input at home on science from both our parents and my, my mother was a was a pharmacist only because in her day at women in medical school it wasn't very common I should say so she went to university became a pharmacist and then worked for many years at the university in the pharmacy department so so they both had a strong science background so we were brought up in that and of course my grandparents were that way and my uncles and everybody talked about particularly biology and medicine so so I got I got quite a lot of that so it was not when I finally came around to making a decision wasn't that complicated a decision to make to be honest and you came to Britain on a Rhodes scholarship to Oxford that must have been quite a leap from freezing Edmonton to well, Oxford's not yeah. that much warmer, but... <laughs> so, so, well, yeah. So, so the story about me coming is interesting. So my father was a great Anglophile. He spent some time over here training at the Hammersmith. And, and of course, he was in the war, so he was with the Canadian Army Medical School, so he knew the UK pretty well, and he always used to talk about how great the UK was. And 
So I had always thought, well, it'd be kind of interesting to to go and do some of my higher education there. So that was all okay. And, and then there was an there was another problem, and that is, I kind of had to leave Canada because I couldn't play ice hockey very well. <laughs> and you was know that that's your a, leg? that well, I'd like to blame it on the leg. <laughs> Truth is. I wasn't very good with a puck and a stick, to be honest. I, I could skate around the rink, but the ice hockey wasn't going very well, and I kept thinking, boy. Was that just totally good. unacceptable? Totally unacceptable, <laughs> yeah. We, I was quite good at road hockey, which was ice hockey without skates, which okay. we used to play in the winter That's on roads that were very hockey. slippery. <laughs> yeah. What was but, the problem with ice hockey then? Well, it, you know... People think ice skating and ice hockey is easy. It isn't actually, and some people can do it. First of all, I've got the wrong shape. I'm tall and thin. You really, to be a good ice hockey player, you have to look a bit like a fire hydrant, and <laughs> and you also have to be pretty bullshit. So anyway, it it wasn't going to work for me. So that so you put all that together, and the draw of perhaps trying to do something in the UK was interesting. With no yeah. ice, basically. With no ice, exactly. No, no, no. no no incentive to play ice hockey at all. So I thought that was pretty interesting. So that, that no, that was basically it. And I, so that's, so I applied for the roads and actually fortunate enough to win it. And that was a bit of a game changer for me because Oxford is very different than Canada. So did you feel like a real outsider? Yeah, sort of. But I, so one of the things that made me I, I think I adopted, ad, adapted to Oxford better than most road scholars. And one of the reasons was I'd done a lot of rowing in Canada. And of course, as soon as I got off the plane, I was down at the boat club. And then I had lots of friends and they were all English friends. So I, so I didn't have much trouble with that. That was my, that was my hookup to get me into the system. And and then it became and Oxford's an easy place to adapt to because lots of kids around. And it's pretty. It was very international in those days. It's even more so now. So that was quite easy to do. So I didn't. I, I didn't really feel. I mean, I didn't feel English, but I didn't feel like I was in the wrong place. What did you think of the English thing? Well, yeah. So some things were great, and some things were a bit weird. Um, so I. I yeah, it, I mean, there there was a very different attitude because the access to all kinds of things that you wouldn't have in Canada, you know, the cultural things in London and lots of music and lots of other things which existed in Canada, but it wasn't everywhere. Because remember, this was it was largely a frontier world. So you know, they liked ice hockey, and then they liked ice hockey, and. <laughs> so so this was pretty different but remember I came to Oxford in 75 and you know things were not great in the UK in 75 and in fact you know it was definitely in terms of standard of living it was definitely stepped down from Canada because it was fairly bumpy the unions were all on strike and it was a yeah it was a it was pretty I mean you could still have a good time but yeah I when I came, I thought, boy, I'm glad I'm not staying here. This would not be so good. The heat doesn't come on until November. It's freezing cold. You know, nobody's got central heating. Right. So who would ever live here? So, so that wasn't, yeah, it wasn't top of my list to stick around, to be honest. You're listening to Past Imperfect, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity, 
with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest this week, the Regis Professor of Medicine at Oxford, Sir John Bell. We'll be back after this. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Past Imperfect, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity, with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester, and our guest this week, the scientist, Sir John Bell. And then you went to Stanford to analyse the immune system. You actually called California parochial. Why did you come back to Britain? Did you feel it was more international? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, the reality is California is parochial, still is parochial, actually, to be honest. And that is that, I mean, it, it is an amazing place in the sense that they have a, a remarkable, innovative and entrepreneurial culture. Stanford's a fabulous university and they do lots of things really well. But you didn't like surfing. No, no, I like surfing. In fact, I used to have a, I used to like windsurfing. And in the lab in Stanford, I used to famously have a weather radio that I put next to me that would continuously give the wind speeds at Coyote Point, which was the place we windsurfed on the bay. And then I would wait until the windsurf, until the wind speed hit 15 to 20 knots, and then down tools out to the car, <laughs> down and windsurf for the rest of the afternoon. So, and I was quite famous for that around the... So, so, so look, I loved California. It was great. But they, you know, it was sort of so good that they didn't feel like they needed to worry about anything else. So I, I used to get the Manchester Guardian Weekly, which you'll remember they used to produce on that very thin paper, and I used to get that flowing in simply because I couldn't find out what was going on in the rest of the world. Um, and, uh, you know, the... Yeah. Anyway, some of your newspaper competition in California isn't really newspaper. Mm. You know, the San Jose Mercury News is not exactly... And, and so I remember vividly there was a massive earthquake in Turkey that killed large numbers of people. And it didn't, it made like the sixth page in the San Francisco Chronicle. And on the first page, there was a picture of a fireman getting a cat out of a tree and saying, oh my God, the cat's in the tree. Anyway, that's, so, so there's, there, I mean, they kind of lived in a bit of a bubble. And I, I and, and they weren't really, on the whole, they weren't really interested in what everybody else was doing. Partly because what they were doing was pretty interesting and exciting. Fine, totally get that. And it was novel, but there was no, 
you know, there was no real interest in what the rest of the world was up to. And as a scientist, you must be driven by curiosity. And you once said, didn't you, I'm most interested in innovation and discovery. As a scientist, I like to be the first person to have made some observation, even a relatively trivial one. What's the thing you're proudest of that you've discovered? Well, that's a good one. Um, so, I, so I, first of all, that... I, People forget, and I think it's really important for kids to remember, because when you're a schoolboy or a schoolgirl, or you're, you're, you get taken in a lab and they give you a formula and they say, do this, and it'll turn blue. You get to the end and sometimes it turns blue and sometimes it doesn't, and then tick, you've done that. So, it's, But that's not really science. It's kind of cooking, actually. Mm -hmm. And teaches how to use a pipette and measure things, and titrate things. But you, so you, it's not until you get in the lab starting to ask questions that you start to see things that no one else in the world has ever seen before. So if you sequence a gene that no one's ever sequenced before, suddenly you know the protein structure and, and then ultimately the, the structure of the protein and that gives you a step towards how the thing will work and how... And that's, that's pretty interesting and what was the big one that you felt that well i made i guess my first really big piece of work was there are a set of proteins on the surface of cells called hla proteins and they're very different in all of us so they we call them polymorphic because they're they have different dna sequences and different proteins and the the crucial thing is that they are the bit of the immune system that gets recognized by other bits of the immune system because they bind foreign antigens. So the for, when you get infected with COVID, the COVID proteins go through the system and get bound by HLA molecules. And then T cells come along and say, eh, guess what? Not seen that before. We better see what we can do about getting rid of it. So it's a, the whole basis of immune response is built around those. And there have been very large amount of work around what they were, but nobody had ever really understood what they were. And I worked in a lab of a very famous man called Hugh McDevitt, who had done some of the early work describing them in the mouse and recognizing them to be the things that determined immune response. You either made a response or you didn't make a response, depending on which of these proteins you had. So the while I was at Stanford, we were amongst the first, and for many of the alleles, the first, to describe the sequences, to say, ah, it's this sequence and that sequence, and that's the thing that's driving this. And then with a colleague called John Todd, we described the sequence of the HLA molecule that was responsible for juvenile diabetes. So people with juvenile diabetes have this allele, and we worked out what it was about the allele that made it major susceptible. And it turned out a mouse who got spontaneous diabetes had the same allele. So that's that was the connection that was made. Mm -hmm. So that was probably my, that was certainly my first significant biological insight. And you did then become Regis Professor of Medicine at Oxford. When COVID came along, did you kind of feel that you were the right person in the right place because you'd already been through a pandemic and you'd seen what it was like? Yeah, I to be honest, I didn't, curiously, I didn't, personally make that connection because I was focused on trying to deal with the, the with the problem at hand and I, I didn't actually 
r- reflect on that until you two ladies interviewed me for the Times. And then you say, well, what was it like? And I said, well, I had polio when I was kidding. You went, oh, my God, you had polio. And then was it like COVID? Well, I guess it was sort of like COVID and then that, all that stuff. So, so I, yeah, so maybe not as much insight as I might have had at the beginning of COVID. But I think we were all sort of intensely focused on the problem at hand. So I, I think that's the reason. That I, it must have given you empathy, though, for the families who were going through yeah, it at a, the time. A, 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 absolutely. And, you know, it, it's interesting because infectious, you know, we lived in, we, we, we don't live in Africa. We live in the, in the developed world. And most of the big infectious challenges that we've seen have been dealt with by vaccines or antibiotics. So antibiotics were a great thing. And then vaccines for most of the childhood infections done. So you, know, when my mother was growing up in the prairies, you know, kids got diphtheria and they died, and you know, people got pertussis and they died, and it was, you know, you didn't, that didn't happen to us because there were vaccines for all those things. So everybody kind of got a bit complacent about infections, and they all said, "Oh well, we're going to find the cure for cancer." Well, cure for cancer would be terrific, but it would be probably worth trying to remember that there are still infectious challenges and COVID was a bit of a wake-up call. Mm. I think we now say, okay, we better spend a bit of time on that one. And did you think straight away that you had to get a vaccine? Did you realise that how important that was going to be as a game-changer? Yeah, well, it wasn't obvious how you were going to get there without a vaccine, to be honest. I mean, there, there, there were a few people who said, well, let's do some lockdowns and then we'll just keep going. Because, of course, the flu pandemic, the 1918 flu pandemic... They managed it basically with classical lockdowns and this and that, but the fifty million people died on the way to on the way to enough people being exposed that you got natural immunity. So I kind of thought, yeah, I'm not so sure that's a game that we want to play. So it really is going to require a vaccine, and it was pretty obvious from the very earliest stages that we were going to have to try and make a vaccine. And fortunately, it turned out to be quite a tractable pathogen for me. Not not all pathogens you, uh, are as susceptible to making a vaccine as that one. But we were lucky on that one. But also your childhood must have made you absolutely determined to roll it out as quickly as possible, having yeah. not benefited so, from so, it. So that is absolutely true because, you know, it's... So, so it's an interesting story about the polio vaccine because they... Salk knew that presence of a big outbreak in North America, he had to get the vaccine out as quickly as he possibly could. So that's why he, you know, they literally scrutinized the trials until they got a signal. And it was a randomized control trial, so they're untreated and treated, and they were looking for incidents polio. And then, anyway, they got a signal, and they whipped it through the regulators and got, as I say, got approved on the same day. Um, and then, of course, how are you, so now you got to make it. And that has real similarities to COVID because many of the vaccines that might have played in our pandemic couldn't be made or they weren't made in sufficient volume to make a difference. And it was really only the three, the two RNA vaccines and our vaccines, which AstraZeneca led all the manufacturing very successfully. They were the ones we could make it really make it scale. And that's why they've had the big impact. I mean, there were a number of other vaccines which were pretty good vaccines, but they couldn't make it properly. Was it like a race in a way between the academics? No, it wasn't a race. And and I I think I and everybody else said, look, we don't really care who gets across the finish line. We just need, everybody needs to focus on getting something. Maybe we'll get one, maybe we'll get two, maybe we'll get three. Let's just keep going fast as we can. So I don't, in fact, I was, when the the BioNTech, 
data came out in November, and they were about a month ahead of us in terms of releasing their data, we were all really excited. And, um, and you know, it was just a great day because we realized that no matter what happened to our vaccine, that we knew there would be a vaccine that worked. So, so that was the kind of sense in the, in, certainly in the Oxford community. And, you know, we, the, the, the scientists behind the vaccine were very keen on two things. One was um, we shouldn't be seen to be making money in the context of a global pandemic, which is interesting because we probably ended up being the only people on the planet who took that perspective, mm. <laughs> which in retrospect is a bit interesting. But and, and actually, in many ways, I think we probably suffered from taking that view because people said, oh, that vaccine, it's too cheap. And they're giving it away can't can't possibly uh, work. Mm. So uh, the Americans in particular have beaten that vaccine up from day one mm. because they hated the idea that there was a vaccine that worked and incidentally worked for severe disease as well as all the other mm. the other two vaccines. But but nevertheless, they didn't like the idea it was going off for nothing. Mm. And then the second thing which we were very keen on was to make sure that we didn't supply the Western world. And then think later about what do we do about Africa and Asia and so on and mm. so forth. And um, I, so I had, I breached both those subjects with Pascal on that famous afternoon because I thought, yeah, the, the, if, if, if we can't do those two things, it'll be a showstopper because the guys are not going to play on our side. But he was good about that. He said, no, no, totally get it. Uh, first of all, if I, tried to make money out of that in a way that pharma normally would, my kids would kill me, so I'm not doing that. <laughs> which, mm. which is interesting. Mm. I, uh, and and so he was completely aligned with that, which was fine. And I think he, I, I don't know what happened in the boardroom at AstraZeneca, mm. but I'm sure he had to persuade some people that that was the right thing to do, which he did. And they stuck with that, so there was no fooling around on that. They were really very, very good about it. Are you shocked that people weren't as altruistic as AstraZeneca and that, I mean, people actually made quite a lot of money out of PPE contracts or um, out of furlough or, or all sorts of areas that during the pandemic there were others who were trying to make money while you were trying to basically save the world? Yeah, so so in, in my other bit of my life during COVID, I was busy, you know, developing testing methodology. We did the lateral flow test for the country at Port and Down. And I helped with a lot of those elements. I didn't do anything in PPE, fortunately. But the what became really clear really early is that there were a lot of people trying to not just make money, but trying to skin the system, actually. Mm. I mean, it was really, and it was pretty distasteful. So when we started to look at these, that you know, the lateral flow tests, which we all now use, and, you know, we're the world's, this country is the world's experts on self-use lateral flow tests, um, but when we started to look, they didn't work very well, but, you know, I had people ringing me up from all over the place saying, oh, I got this test and it's the best you could ever get. And I think they thought that we were going to order, you know, a hundred million tests from them. They were going to make a lot of money. And then of course you test it and you found it didn't work. Mm. In fact, it not just didn't work, probably didn't work at all. And you go, what is going on? Are we still too complacent, do you think, about pandemics? Have we learned the lessons? Well, I, I think the 
I think there's an ongoing issue because, first of all, there's lots of distractions in the political world at the moment. You know, war in the Ukraine, climate crisis, all that stuff, um, food security, um, China, all that stuff. And so as we taper, as we tapered down from COVID, released the lockdowns just, you know, a year and a bit ago, and then things started to go back to normal life, it was quite easy to get into a, into a rhythm of dealing with the other problems and saying, well, we sorted the COVID problem out, so now we better get on with other stuff. So I would say if we got slammed with a new and a truly new virus now, we would be a bit better, but not much better than mm-hmm. we were the last time, frankly. Mm-hmm. And there's still quite a lot of work to do to get ourselves ready for another pandemic. And most countries are in the same... So this is not a UK problem. This is a global problem. Everybody's gone to sleep and said, oh, God, thank God we got over that one. Let's now go off and do something else. So I think people do need to be a little bit more conscious of the fact that that was... That obviously, the pandemic was terrible. A lot of people lost family members. You know, there was a lot of disruption in people's jobs, and, um, people's businesses, disruption of global movement but it didn't kill as a percentage figure that many people and you look at avian flu kills 20 to 30 percent the original SARS pandemic SARS-CoV-1 killed I think more like 30 or 40 percent and you know some will do more than that so and and then you do the thought so I think people just don't do the thought experiments so you know all the things that sort of you know, the supermarkets were open and the police were driving around in cars and if your house burned down, the fire department would come with masks on. Well, I can tell you, if you've got 30% mortality, all those guys are not coming out to look after you. That's done. So you're lucky to get the army, I tell you, mm. on the streets. So so I don't... So people forget that that it could... It was bad, but it could be a lot worse. And I think that's my biggest worry mm. is that... It is not beyond the realms of possibility that we get another one that's much worse. Mm. And in terms of the handling of the COVID pandemic, who do you think made more mistakes? Were the politicians more to blame or the NHS? No, I think that's... an. First of all, I don't think... and, And I've said this in public before, but I think the public were not good at recognizing that nobody had done this before. Mm. There wasn't anybody alive who'd actually... Now, you know, a few of us had seen HIV go through and the odd flu epidemic go through and that sort of stuff, but nobody had done anything like this before, really. And so don't be surprised if nobody knew quite what to do and that there were no really clear routes to go. So you had to pick your way through this knowing that you're going to make mistakes. And I've often said that I think the politicians had been more um, transparent and stood up and said, you know, just to be clear, this is an extraordinary, exceptional set of circumstances. And this, at times, is not going to go well because nobody's ever done this before. So we will make mistakes, get used to it. We will do our best to correct those mistakes when we know they're mistakes, and we will just keep going and we'll fix this in the end, which is ultimately what happened so I, I have a lot of sympathy for the guys who are in the hot seat trying to make the decisions. Uh, 
Of course, the scientists made mistakes too. So the science, you know, everybody said, well, let's let's be steered by the science. But the truth is the science, again, was a bit hit and miss. But the crucial thing was to know when you'd made a mistake and say, oh, okay, that wasn't quite the right mm. advice. Let's back up, start again. Because I, I th you know, I think one of the things being a scientist, it teaches you to be pretty humble and contrite because, you know, when you don't, scientists start by not knowing anything about anything and they try and learn as they go along. So, you know, we do this all the time. And what about the NHS? So so the NHS, the, the front line of the NHS actually performed really very, very effectively under huge pressure. But I think the thing that I wasn't that comfortable with is that we changed, that we were in a position where we had to change a lot of policy decisions to, in quote, save the NHS. Well, of course, we all wanted to save the NHS, but why were we in a position where we had to save the NHS? I thought, I, I kept thinking, the NHS is there to save me. I'm not here to save the <laughs> NHS. Well, it's a very British thing, you know, isn't it? What's that all about? <laughs> and so I think that, that, and that was not a reflection of the people in the NHS, a reflection of probably many years of underinvestment, a fragile, not very resilient system that actually was going to have to cope with quite substantial pressures and did in the end. I mean, they squeaked through, which is okay. Some of the other bits of the NHS were, you know, didn't go so well. And certainly the social care thing didn't go well at all. Um, but it, again, you know, I'm, I'll be the last guy to throw stones at people in the pandemic because I think everybody was trying really hard. And do you think we do treat the NHS too much like a religion? Do you think it needs a total overhaul? Well, I, I think, you know, the reality is that the NHS was designed in those, that that very heady era in, the, era in the 50s and the 60s and the early 70s, where medicine was making great strides, but it was all focused on end-stage disease, people with acute illnesses, you know, chest pain, um, you know, cancers of one sort or another, you know, that, and there were really exciting developments over that period. But the whole healthcare system, which involved building big hospitals, dressed people up in pajamas, give them a crash cart to run around with. I mean, it was all terrific. And I trained in that environment and it was great. Actually, the, the world today is really different and the system hasn't adjusted. So you could say in the current world that the acute hospital is actually the ambulance service. And the hospitals are all care homes. Well, you know, that, that's not what they envisioned in 1954, I can tell you. So, so I, think that, I think that just emphasizes that there's going to have to be some really significant shifts. We've had demographic change. You know, we've added 10 or 12 years to life expectancy in the time I've been a doctor. Well, boy, oh boy, just think about that. That's an unbelievable statistic. But what we've ended up with is an elderly demography large population of frail elderly people that have all kinds of chronic diseases that we didn't bother to try and prevent when we could have. And as a result, the thing's really hard to manage in its current form. So, so I mean, my view is that it needs a pretty serious redraft because the things we put into place, big hospitals with multiple tertiary services, all the way down to GPs, they don't, you know, they... It's not clear that they're servicing the function that they were designed to service. Mm -hmm. So I think that needs a rethink. 
Is that why you've compared the NHS really now to the Battle of the Somme with doctors and nurses being sent out like cannon fodder? Do you think that you've just got to start all over again? Well, that, <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to be quoted on that a bit, I guess. But the, yeah. So I think the first thing that you find out, and it's not just the Battle of the Somme, I think our, our friend in Russia is finding the same thing. And that is, if, you, if you've got a problem you're trying to solve, you're unlikely to solve it by just throwing more manpower at it. You've got to solve the fundamentals of the problem. We've already got, we already employ 1.5 million people, for goodness sakes, in the health service. So you've got to understand what problem you're trying to solve, and you have to change the structural things that make it difficult to do that. And what you don't do is you just don't train and throw more people, because what happens is that they don't stay. Morale falls, as you know, a very large number of graduating medical students now don't stay in the NHS. They either go abroad, they go work in the city, or they go do something else. So if you don't fix the fundamentals, you're going to have, you know, it's going to be like the leaky tin can. You've, you'll never be able to fill it up. So, and, and of course, if you want a way to increase the cost of a healthcare system, train more doctors, because they spend money like there's no tomorrow. So... <laughs> You know, just, you know, it's it's a well-known fact. If, you know, training lots of doctors sounds like fun, but it's got m very major consequences, and it's not good for the docs. So I'm, I think people need to stand back before they rush into that decision. And you've got to the stage now, really, when people are terrified of, of getting ill um, in case they're not going to be treated. Would, are you worried about, you know, if you have a stroke, getting an ambulance, or do you think we haven't yet got... To no, uh, I think that I, you're 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 absolutely right, and but this has been going on for a while, and that is that, you know, old people who are frail and elderly they don't want to go to hospitals, because they've all had friends who've died in hospitals, and they're unfamiliar places, and they're not very warm and cuddly. They're pretty, um, uh, yeah, pretty sterile actually, in more ways than one. So, so they, you know. The elderly have always wanted to stay at home. We haven't been very good at adapting the system to allow them to stay at home. And I think we need to think a little bit harder about how people can be sick at home, monitored in sensible ways, and um, allow them to recover there rather than in some anonymous ward in hospitals. And I think that's something that, I mean, there are a few groups around that are doing that now, but, you know, we need to do a lot more of that because we can't just keep building hospitals and training thousands more doctors. I mean, how's that going to work? That's just, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And you're a workaholic. What do you do to relax? Well, yeah, I, yeah. I have about six jobs and I try and do them all as well as I possibly can. I'm quite, I have a sort of portfolio existence where I do a lot of things for a lot of different organizations. And I quite enjoy that because I can multitask really well. So that, 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 I find that pretty gratifying. And it also keeps me, you know, not everything's going well at the same time as we found out in COVID. So if you're doing multiple things, although something's not going so well, there will always be two or three other things that are going pretty well. So you can keep multiple balls in the air. So that's, that's basically how I keep going. I, I also don't eat, which is kind of helpful. So <laughs> I, at yeah. all, ever. Well, no, I, have, I usually have one square a day and that, that's... I run on ketones. I don't know whether you know this, but your brain operates perfectly well on ketones, so that's how I tend to get So what does that mean? Well, when you starve, you produce a particular form of 
ketone and that, that and you can get energy out of ketones if you're a brain cell but not anything else so so what are you actually eating every day i have a cup of honey and lemon in the morning and then i usually get through to dinner with a cup of tea or tea yeah so, no lunch no i don't do lunch i fall asleep if i have lunch so i don't do it and you haven't sold your diet yeah and you are a natural optimist though do you think that's luck or genetics or do you think that's your upbringing yeah no lots of people say that I think I probably am I mean I always even when things are pretty grim I always like to look at the positive side of things I I suspect it's probably my upbringing because the you know as a family we always had a very positive we were always looking forward to the next great thing. And, you know, when I look back on it, there were clearly some pretty bumpy and tense times for the family, but the mood was always pretty good and people said, oh, no, it'll be... you." And, and also they... I was, I was raised to think you could actually do anything if you put your mind to it and you could succeed. It turns out, of course, it turns out not to be true, but it's quite a great thing to believe if you go into stuff. So, you know, when I start something new, I'm always game to say, okay off we go, let's have a go at that. I'm sure we can try and make it work and maybe it will. And scientifically, that's a really, really good trait because a lot of people are conservative and cautious and they say, well, well, I, you know, I've changed my scientific platform half a dozen times in my career. You know, I started doing immunogenetics with human Devitt. I then did quite a lot of molecular biology. I then did structural biology with Dave Stewart and his colleagues in in Oxford, then I did a lot of large-scale genomics, was involved in Genomics England, um, and then, you know, the, one of the most exciting things I'm doing at the moment is I'm chairing a biotech company that spun originally out of my lab with a postdoc called Bent Jacobson that's now got a great new therapy for cancer, which turns out that it works. So that's, a, that's quite an exciting, T-cell-mediated cancer therapeutic. So that's, I mean, that's, again, completely different. And mm-hmm really interesting so I keep all those things ticking along. So looking back to yourself as a little boy looking up at those doctors in the white coats around your hospital bed what do you wish you'd known then that you know now? People tend and and I'm sure I did and I think everybody in those days did is that you assume that the world particularly the world in a in a domain like medicine is what it is and it changes very slowly so just get used to it this is this is what happens get your legs up in the air we'll stretch them as best we can that's the best we can do off we go but what what i think i recognize now more than ever before is the pace at which things change and when you make decisions about what you're going to do you have to make those decisions in the context that everything is moving around you at great speed so if you assume that you're going to make a decision to do something three years from now, and you assume that the world's going to look like the scientific world looks as it does now, then you've made a mistake because everything will have changed. Technology will have got better insights into what's happening. So it's, it, in that sense, it's very interesting because it's a, it's a very dynamic, rapidly moving arena. And that, that's not, I suspect what it looked like in 1953. Professor Bell, thank you very much for joining us on Past Imperfect. My pleasure. You've been listening to Past Imperfect in association with Speakers for Schools. 
the Youth Social Mobility Charity, with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester, and our guest this week, the scientist, Sir John Bell. The producer was Lucy Ditchmont. If you enjoyed this episode, you can listen back to other interviews with guests including Sir Paul Nurse, Professor Green and Angela Rayner on the Times Radio app or download Past Imperfect wherever you get your podcasts. You can also buy our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young. Thank you for listening to Past Imperfect. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website, where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help.